0: Your Wavelength, a podcast on physics and publishing.
1: We take you behind the scene of some of the most interesting work published in the Nature portfolio.
0: We talk to the authors and to the editors and bring you the latest insights. Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to On Your Wavelength this month. I'm Ankit Nirban from Nature Reviews Physics, joining you from London this week.
1: I'm Cristiano Marticardi from Nature Communication, and I'm joining from Berlin. So, Ankita, uh, this is the, our second episode of our new web length for this 2023. So, it's, uh, it's kind of exciting because we changed a little bit the format, and uh, there have been a lot of uh, great feedback. So, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, lately, I got interested in, in uh, uh, space exploration because I didn't know how many Founding are just putting in space exploration during the last, you know, I don't know, ten, many years, and uh, and yes, it's reality that we actually uh, we will get back to the moon probably soon.
0: Yeah, I did, and it's super interesting because I think in the last few years there's been so many debates about you know human exploration versus robotic exploration. obviously, we've sent all these robots to the Moon and to Mars, and they're sending up back great data. But it's interesting that NASA have now decided that it's time for humans to go back. I mean, when's the last time humans last went to the Moon? It's been many years, right?
1: Actually, I don't know if the overarching goal is to move population there or just harvesting energy and then send this energy back to the Earth. So... Uh, but interestingly, there's a few statistics that tells you that we are actually putting a lot of money. Uh, for example, the United States spent 64% of the total government, government fundings for space exploration. China, 17%. US, uh, uh, Europe, uh, only 7%. Then Japan and Russia, 3 and uh, 2%. This is something that 20 years ago was completely not on on the reach, and also, for example, there's a lot of um, private companies. Uh, there's a lot of interest to go back and to explore more opportunity, either with robots or actually human being on the on the space. We will we'll see. Just the upcoming years will be fantastic for space exploration, and of course, uh, together with um, human space exploration new technological developments has a central role into this, uh, the development of these new missions. And you have an interesting story, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Recently, I think last week, I saw this new result that they developed these foldable membrane mirrors. So that obviously for um, space telescopes need highly reflective mirrors, but I think the practicalities of getting these giant things into space is definitely a huge challenge. And so now there is this new kind of mirror, which basically can be folded right up to go for the launch. And then once you're in space, it can be unfolded, which I think is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it's actually it's actually pretty cool. And this actually connects really well with, this, with the topic of today.
0: Yeah, so this month's paper is also an optics paper. And it's actually about the double slit experiment, the famous quantum experiment that showed that light can behave like a wave
1: how about this double slit experiment
0: so obviously the original experiment has two slits that are separated in space and then you see like an interference pattern when light shines through it and in this paper what they do is they have these slits but they're separated in time rather than space Um, so it's kind of like the time version of this classic experiment it came up in nature physics last week called the double slit time diffraction at optical frequencies. So stay tuned to find out more.
2: This experiment was conceived during lockdown and uh, it was a dialogue between um, me and one of our postdocs, Stefano Vettori. It was very difficult. We were both going crazy with childcare and everything, but then we, we were trying to explore scattering from a temporal particle instead of a a static particle. That was the main idea. And that's how we started the experiment. Um, and, and for the first uh, a year and a half, we were trying to do a temporal scattering um, until we moved to, to, to this uh, double slit. Um, the reason why we moved was that we had a very good experimental results on the temporal scattering, but we, we couldn't really match them with theory. It was very difficult to prove that what we had was exactly scattering. And so we were trying the pitch with our colleagues, with John Pendry and Stefan Meyer, and uh, they were all feeling that that this was exactly what we were looking for, but we couldn't believe it, we couldn't prove it fully. And so there, John had the idea, says, well, with one particle, you will not be convincing. What about having two particles? So then with two particles, basically the particle becomes a temporal slit. And then with two particles, we do have a very clear signature of these oscillations. And that's clear for all scientists. So there's no, no need to have a precise theory to explain it. This was a, a long preparation for the one particle, probably a year and a half. And then when we moved to two particle, we started the project with two master students that had to modify partially the experiment. So that took them a while. From the moment that we actually started doing it, in, in a, less than a week, we had everything done. So it's often like that, like the preparation takes forever, but then once you are there, everything can move very quickly. The theory is really a challenge here. And it's because the theory really is not developed fully in the community. And we were working with the best theoretician that that I can find, with, with John Pendry here, with Manuel Khalif in New York. And it's very difficult to find something that would fit everything. After a back and forth, we actually realized that the fact that we don't fit everything is probably good. It, it shows that there is new physics there. Um, and then once once we realized that, then writing the paper was, uh, was quite fast. I, I like to celebrate the paper many times. Uh, I think celebrating is the biggest, the best part of our work. So um, we usually celebrate uh, the first measurements when we see the effect. Um, and that was really exciting. I remember the student calling me and running to the lab. Then we celebrate the acceptance because that's another milestone in some ways. Um, but we, we will probably leave the, the best celebration when the paper is out. I, I do believe very much in celebrating science, scientific achievement. It, it's so frustrating to be a scientist because everything goes wrong all the time until it works that we need to celebrate when it works.
0: Here today, I'm joined by Ricardo Sapienza, who led the work on this paper. Ricardo is professor of physics at Imperial College London, where he leads the experimental solid state group and is also the director of the Centre for Plasmonics and Metamaterials. He investigates light in nanoscale structures and metamaterials. I'm also joined today by Nina Meinzer, senior editor at Nature Physics, who handled the paper today. Nina's been an editor since 2016, first working at Nature Communications before joining Nature Physics in 2019. Nina's PhD and postdoc background is in plasmonics and metamaterials. And at Age of Physics, they look after the area of optics and photonics more broadly. So Ricardo, I'll start with you. The paper is about doing the famous double slit experiment, but in time rather in space. But before we start, could you remind our listeners um, about how the original experiment works and the key messages from that?
2: Yeah, so the, this experiment was, was made um, uh, over 100 years ago, and the goal there at that time was to prove that light is a wave. Uh, because in, following Newton's uh, uh, ideas, everybody was believing that, that light was made of particles bouncing around. Um, and to do that, um, the, the experiment was made with a, a screen, um, the opaque screen with two little holes, like the famous slits, and then light crossing the, the, the slits will then uh, propagate uh, after the screen and then far away from the screen, you look at the interference pattern uh, that generates. So in that experiment, the separation in space between the slits determine the position of the maxima and the minima in the interference pattern in the far field, in uh, far away from the screen. And uh, the, the key message then was that there was this interference at that time. So there was a clear proof that light is a wave, not just particle. For our experiment, like a, as a, as a background for our experiment, this shows that when you uh, change in space the the position of, of the slit, you, you you modulate the angular um, pattern that you see outside uh, the screen. So space is linked to angle for the light emergent. And this is a very general concept, for example, all metamaterial that we are using now, for example, all metasurfaces, uh, which are surfaces, structured, nanostructures, such that they have different properties than the, the bulk material. They have the power to control the direction of the light. The key example to these days is, for example, a metal lens, a very thin lens. They can focus the light by changing the angle of the light after the metal lens. Now, what we did instead uh, is to move this to the temporal domain. And so we create something that is equivalent to the double slit, but now it's a a medium that changes its properties from opaque to transparent twice at different times. So it's not a different position, but different times. And so now if we change it at different times, what we are doing, we are not changing the angular uh, pattern that we get, we are changing the frequency pattern. So we are changing the color of the light transmitted through this uh, structure. So we, we send a laser beam with a specific color, and then after our screen, our temporal screen, we have new frequency, new color that appears, and they have a, an interference pattern that that is exactly the same that you would get in space.
0: So, why did you decide to go from the space domain to the time domain? Of course, for the space experiment, there was sort of like a clear uh, motivation to show to well ask the question: Can light behave as a wave? What's the question you were asking with this paper?
2: So, um, we really try to see whether we can make a temporal metamaterial um, or a time varying metamaterials. And uh, we want to also really ask ourselves, how much can we control light and um, how much new colors we can generate with this? This is still a very open question. This is uh, the new direction of the field. We are going from spatially uh, controlling light to spatially and temporary controlling light. And, uh, and this is a key element to have full control of light. So the, the, the long-term goal here is to have a, a, a structure or a device They can, you send a wave, light wave in, and you get any light wave out that you want. So any direction, any frequency. So it's like an advanced wave synthesizer. And, And this would be a real milestone for light control. This would be something that would replace our lenses, but it can be a new light source. So to do that, we need to unlock this temporal domain. And this is really hard technologically. Like how can we change the optical property of a material and the key here is how do we do it on a, on a time scale that is uh, comparable to the time that it takes for light to do an oscillation which for light we are talking about the femtosecond regime so 10 to the minus 15 uh, seconds so it's uh, way faster than any electronic device so we can't really tune it by applying voltage um, the temporal ef- uh, tem- uh, thermal effect takes much much longer milliseconds so it's really really hard how do how can we do that and this is a the question that has blocked the experiment so this is the domain where there's been so much theoretical advancement and so little experiment but in the last few years there are experiments appearing and, and they're appearing in optics that's what we do but also in other wave domain because these are wave properties so they apply to any kind of wave
0: so this paper that we're talking about today is an experiment that you did um and as you mentioned there's lots of experimental challenges was there any specific um experimental challenge for this experiment so ex- as as an did you make any new equipment for it did you have to develop some new type of experimental technique or process
2: we we are using um, um, ultrafast spectroscopy so we are using very uh, short laser pulses and uh, very high intensities and um, and this, this is the the, the key of the, of the whole experiment, which is quite difficult to realize in the lab. So th- that that's required quite a lot of design. So we have to create this double slit we, using a double laser pulse. And th- this was a, the main challenge that was was tackled mostly by two master students here at Imperial that did a, a fabulous job. Um, so they, they create a system to generate from one laser pulse a, a double pulse. Um, and then this this is the main enabler of this, uh, this experiment.
0: I also wanted to ask you a little bit about the theory so as you were saying that this um, progress in this area has been mainly experimentally limited and there's a lot of theory, but then you also said that like your results earlier post questions for theorists so what what is the state of the theory now and what are the open questions for theorists after this paper.
2: There are there are two main challenges in the theory. So one is that the modulation that we are we are studying are so fast that they um, they go beyond what we call a perturbation. So in physics, often we 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 simplify our theory by saying that the effect we're looking is very tiny compared to other effects, and so we can neglect some interactions. So in this case, we we are not in a perturbation regime anymore. The the, the variation, for example, in the um, reflectivity of our mirror goes goes from zero one to almost one. So this is not a small correction, it? a thousand fold and uh, changes in, in some cases um, and and uh, on the other hand the, the other theoretical issue is that uh, we are uh, approaching temporal domain uh, where the material response is really un- unclear and difficult to predict nobody knows uh, how a semiconductor would respond to uh, femtosecond dynamics this was a for me the biggest surprise we discovered in our experiment that the, the material you're using can respond to uh, with speeds below 10 femtoseconds much different than what expected by the community, and uh, much deeper by than what you, one can predict with a simple model. Um, so there is a lot of theory there, but uh, there's already, there already work appearing, and theoreticians are uh, tackling this problem. So I'm sure there will be progress very soon.
0: So it's an exciting time then, that theory and experiment are sort of going hand in hand and pushing each other forward. So what's next for you? Um, what's your next experiment?
2: After this experiment, now we we have a. a very big list of things we want to probe. Um, we really feel that we are the beginning of, of, of a new wave of experiments. And um, the main two direction that, that we are looking and, and the community is looking, so one is uh, moving from two uh, particle to many, many particles. And if you do that, you can create something that look like a crystal, something like a periodic variation uh, of the optical property in time. And this is what um, has been predicted um, uh, by theorists to be a temporal crystal, or a time crystal, which has a very peculiar properties, uh, which uh, flip our mind around the symmetries, because instead of having direction, uh, uh, energy forbidden in propagation, it will give you direction forbidden. And, um, and this is something that w- would be really, really a, a milestone. On the other hand, we're also trying to integrate the temporal variation with, with spatial variation and see where we can interlink space and time. And uh, can we then uh, control light uh, both in direction and frequency? Can we uh, achieve new phenomena that we cannot do either in space only or or time only?
0: And as a long-term goal, uh, what sort of, do you see this turning into uh, applications uh, for everyday use or will they turn into sort of more sophisticated lab equipment?
2: No, this is definitely going to application. There's actually a very large industrial interest in uh, metamaterials in general. Probably the optical side is the one that has more challenges because uh, to modulate the material, you need a lab of the size of a really big uh, laser lab. So it's not something that could be miniaturized at the moment. But the same kind of physics apply to uh, acoustic waves, radio frequency waves, and and, and many others. So we definitely expect application coming, for example, uh, novel uh, antenna for 6G, which uh, if you time modulate them, you can uh, pack many more antenna in the same volume Or uh, you can use this for optical computing. So you can use uh, the time modulation as a degree of freedom to then perform a computation. There are many, many applications. There are uh, medical devices that can be boosted by having metamaterials. For example, MRI has already been boosted by that. So if you add the temporal domain, you can do multi-frequency, multiplexing. I I believe this is definitely going to application. I would say probably my own field, the optics will be the last one to come to application. But whatever we discover. Uh, in one domain, we can apply to other domains.
0: Sounds like a very exciting and thriving field. Um, So I'm going to turn to you, Nina, now. Um, You obviously handle optics and photonics broadly within nature physics. So do you get a lot of papers on temporal metamaterials? Uh, Do you see this added interest in this topic?
3: Well, I do. Many is is an interesting word here, because it is still a fairly small community. But I have seen a steady trickle of papers over the last few years. But as Ricardo already mentioned earlier, for the last sort of five or ten years that it's been around, the time-varying metamaterials have been largely a theoretical field. But the The experiments are picking up, and I'm seeing more and more papers. So to me, it feels like the field is sort of at a cusp, it's certainly not yet exploded, but it's at the cusp of really growing and seeing experiments like the one that Ricardo was just talking about will certainly be helpful to communicate that.
0: And on a bit more of a personal level, I suppose, what was your reaction when you saw this paper land on, on your desk? <laughs>
3: it's a good one. I first just read the title and thought, hmm... Hasn't that been done before? That must have been done before. Of course, it hasn't, at least not (laughs) in in this way. The thing is, when you actually get around to reading the paper, and I think that goes back to Ricardo's ease at writing the paper, it's a deceptively simple story. It sounds very, very simple, and unless you have a bit of the feeling for the field, you might go, oh, but these experiments are easy. Everybody could do that. What's interesting about that? But it is really really—it's um, it, really an experiment that is, because it is so simple, it's quite a beautiful way of illustrating all the concepts that make up time-varying metamaterials or time-varying optics more generally. So as an editor, you're always looking for papers that might drive a field or that might influence a field. So I thought it might be one, and that was handed over to the reviewers and as ricardo well remembers they confirmed my impression quite clearly
0: so was the peer review quite a smooth process in this paper then
3: it was exceptionally smooth i would say i probably shouldn't be saying this but i rarely see this positive reports this level of positivity i think it, to paraphrase one of the reviewers i think they they said if there's they did pretty much along the lines of what I just said, they said, well, people could say this isn't quite enough, but actually, if there's any experiment that can show wider physics community and maybe even the broader public what time-varying optics is about, this is it. You rarely read such a clear statement of endorsement in in a review report, so I was quite happy to see that. And other than that, I think it was just smaller usual smaller technical things so there wasn't there weren't too many bumps I was quite happy about that.
0: And you mentioned earlier that this is actually still quite a small field so from the editorial perspective how difficult was it to find reviewers. Um, Because I think from my experience, and particularly in small fields or highly collaborative fields, it's very difficult to find people who don't have a conflict of interest.
3: Yes, it can be difficult. And you have to add to that, that I have seen more and more papers of that recently. So the chances of me having just had a paper or having somebody else's paper under consideration or them just having reviewed for me are also quite high, which is why we only had two reviewers in the end, but they were pretty much... um, they were of the same opinion, so you kind of have to weigh how many reviewers do I need to cover all my expertise versus how many are available and aren't aren't working together.
0: So other than glowing referee reports, what else do you look for in a nature physics paper?
3: Well, I only get the glowing referee reports if I see something and actually send it out to review. <laughs> they're, not, they're not a given in any form. Ideally, the ideal nature physics paper for me should be something that moves the field forward in some shape or form. We do always say we're looking for a new conceptual advance, but that is, of course, quite a a vague thing to think about. So for me, it really is, okay. is this something that will at least advance a subfield to a significant extent and not just provide an additional piece of evidence to what we already know. Will people be inspired by it? Will people be interested and get excited about it? And in
0: addition to handling optics papers, you also handle some of the non-primary content. I do. Um, which includes things like news pieces, opinion pieces, yep. research highlights, imagine yep. the books and arts column. Yes. Um, so could you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Yeah, so our... Non-primary content is actually quite broad in nature physics, as you said. It has the more sort of technical bits like the news and views and all sorts of things, but we all look after those. But there are also the the things that I find a bit more fun, the opinion pieces, the world views, which is a type of opinion piece, and the books and art sections and our thesis there. Uh, I think the part of most fun of the job, because you do get to sort of move away from the everyday of your technical physics. So let's take the books and art section as an example. The books and art section, as the name suggests, it covers, it's usually reviews. So reviews in the, not reviews in the physics sense, but reviews in what you might find in a newspaper or somewhere. So we'll get people to review books or any other form of art, and we're trying hard to not just make it book reviews, but for the books of course you always have to find a balance because my thinking at least is that for our audience of physicists they're very unlikely to actually pick up a popular science physics book they're more likely to pick up something with a bit of an angle or something that isn't quite so physics but of course it has to have something physics in it to to actually relate to the topic of the journal Uh, for example we recently this month actually we published a review on the science of baby which is sort of a physics view a biophysics view on how babies form from conception actually preconception to how they develop but normally you get the biology angle and this is a bit more the physics angle of all the movements and the fluid dynamics and all these sorts of things so those sorts of things we think people might actually be interested in and think it's it's fun to read. And it's certainly fun for us to wade through the catalogs of the publishers or get emails from the book publishers with pitches and picking out the things you would like. But we're trying quite hard to not just do book reviews. So in that respect, it sometimes seeps into into my private life that I might just be on the tube and I'll see you an advertisement for an exhibition or a film that's coming out that has some kind of physics-y angle to it and then we'll discuss it with my colleague Leo who does the section with me and we'll decide if we want to review it or not or you see something on, on a streaming service and think oh yeah actually we could. So that's always, that's always kind of nice
0: that sounds fun and I feel like you must always have really good recommendations for friends or you know good present ideas <laughs> you're reading all these books and you have your finger on the pulse of what's coming out
3: certainly certainly for the friends who aren't scientists but are interested in science you definitely always have a have a good idea of what you might be giving them for their their birthdays or something